This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The church has marks because we have a marker. We have one who marks us as his own. And that's the great promise of the gospel is that God has claimed us to be his people. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, your host, and today we are delighted to welcome Dr. Barry York. Dr. York is Dean of the Faculty and Professor of Pastoral Theology at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He has had a number of different roles over the years. He's taught a number of places. He's pastored. He regularly blogs now for the blog Gentle Reformation. He's the general editor of the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Journal, and and he podcasts as well on 3GT. And so we are delighted to welcome him today to talk to us about a subject uh, that he feels passionate about, and that is the marks of the church. So, Dr. York, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on Theology on the Go, Jonathan. It's great to be here. So I wanted to just begin with a relatively simple question, I suppose. What are the marks of a church? Well, that is a subject that's been debated historically, but the Reformers, as they wrestled with that, they settled on three, the primary one being the faithful preaching of the Word of God, that's uh, central and chief. But then following along with that, the second mark, they said that really distinguished true gathering of God's people was the right administration of the sacraments. And then a third one that developed a little bit further along in the discussion regarding the marks was the proper exercise of church discipline. Of course, those have to be teased out as to exactly what they mean, but those were considered the primary marks regarding the essential identity of the church. So before we tease out what each of those means, I wonder if you could just give us a little more insight into how that differed perhaps at least in broad strokes, from maybe the conception of the church that the Reformers were reacting against? In other words, why did they even engage in that discussion, and and what was distinctive about those three marks, as opposed to perhaps other definitions of what the church was? Well, of course, the Protestants were responding to the corruption that they were seeing in the medieval Catholic church, And so, as they were looking at how the church was being defined by Catholicism, uh, they particularly noted that they were focusing on the attributes that we find in the Nicene Creed, that of one holy uh, Catholic and apostolic church. And you see this particularly in the Council of Trent, as they're responding to the Reformers, they again, highlight their view of the church, and they do, they do hold to those attributes. And the Reformers weren't opposed to those. They, obviously, in holding to the Nicene Creed, they believe that the church is one, it's holy, it's apostolic. But they felt that there wasn't a clear distinction being made between you know, attributes of the invisible church, the universal church of Christ, versus the visible church, the gathering, and the of God's people. And as they looked at the corruption they saw in the Catholic Church, they wanted to really um, be clear. As we look at people calling themselves Christians gathered in a, a body, how can we know whether they're really, it's a really a true church or that's a true gathering of God's people or not? And so their study of God's Word 
that came out uh, through particularly their confessions across Europe uh, began to really center and focus on, on these three attributes that we've mentioned. So then I wonder if you could expand a little bit on each of those three attributes. How did they uh, see these emerging from their study of the Bible? And, you know, at least briefly, what do each of these attributes point us towards and, and consist of? Well, um, of course, they felt that the gospel was center, that who Jesus Christ is was primary. And so a true church would be representing Christ by being ambassadors of him and proclaiming his word. Calvin talked about how that the name of the church is designated by those who profess to worship the one God and Christ. And then that's seen by them being initiated into the faith by baptism, by partaking of the Lord's Supper, and holding together the word of God. So they not only were just hearing the word, but there was an action on behalf of the congregation to respond to it and obedience and holiness. So the word of God is, and the gospel, the proclamation of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to everything they're doing. So they're not, people talk today often about putting the gospel at the center. And, and it sounds to me like mm-hmm. one of the things you're emphasizing is that's exactly what they were focused on too. And they articulated mm-hmm. it in terms of these marks. Yes, very much so. And, you know, the gospel and the fullness of that term. So not just preaching a, you know, an evangelistic message only where it's only comes from one of the four gospels. But, you know, as Paul said, they were preaching the whole counsel of God, that the whole word of God contains the gospel from you know, Genesis to Revelation, and that the church had the duty to bring that whole gospel to God's people. Now, you've been a pastor in a, a several different congregations, and, and I wonder how these three marks that you've outlined sort of shaped your understanding of your role as a pastor and your oversight of the flock, which was entrusted to your care. Well, just to be uh, clear, I actually uh, church planted and pastored and stayed in the same place for 22 years, although I did help with some other congregations but uh, before I came to the seminary. So just uh, just so you know that. But So it was a long-term church planting, and then I see a, I saw a few other churches mentioned, but th- those were the ones that you helped with. Okay, so, yes, so you've spent right. a lot of time in one place. So then in that long-term ministry, um, several decades, how did these marks shape your understanding of your role as a pastor? Well, my duty was first and foremost to be, you know, one who handles the workman who handles the Word of God accurately. So that that was a primary thing. And of course, that works itself out in preaching. Although, as I tell the students at the seminary, so often they come to seminary thinking that Preaching is just about being behind the pulpit on Sunday morning. And certainly that's central as the church gathers for worship. It's central to its life and health to come and have the Word of God read and expounded faithfully by the minister. But that's really just the beginning of the work. The minister has a duty to make sure that Word is being impressed upon his people throughout the week. So, tried to shape our ministry to be centered around the Word of God, whether it was in the you know, in the Sabbath school, Sunday school materials, having lots of scripture memory, teaching our congregation in their homes how to do family worship, doing visitations and counseling where, you know, the Bible was regularly opened, and Bible study. So the whole of the church's life 
really should be centered around the Word of God. That, that should be chief and primary. And it can have its different outworkings, its different applications, but people involved in a true congregation of God's people should never feel as if there's an absence of the Word of God, that it's, it's there, it's available. As Moses said and Paul repeated, it's right there in your mouths, the Word of God. So the word needs to be shaping all that you do, obviously, uh, beginning from the pulpit, but even as you're counseling people or, or as you're sitting down and meeting with them, as you're training them, as you're working with the children of the church, all of this is shaped and governed by the word of God. Did you find that to be, um, in one sense, it's an immense responsibility, but but in another sense, it strikes me that that is very freeing. There's so much literature today given to pastors about all these things they should be doing. And it seems like what you are describing is, is a much more focused type of understanding of your role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so often when churches begin to struggle, when they have conflict, when they see their numbers diminishing, when they want to, you know, to be revived and work through revitalization efforts— it's so easy to start grasping at the latest Christian fad. They hear some other church around the block or now with the internet across the nation is doing something that's exciting and new. And so they start adding on and grabbing hold of these supposed lifelines to try to bring vitality back to their church. And again, that's not that we can't learn from others or there's not certain ministries that we might want to be involved in, but I think we have to really begin at the core. And that's what the, that's what the Reformers did in, in reviving the church and, and bringing really life out of much death and light out of much darkness as they went back to the Word of God and found there that's their life. That's where we have to start. And no matter what else we do at the core of our ministry, we have to be sure that our people are coming into living contact with the Word of God. That's what's going to enliven us and revive our spirits. Does an understanding of these marks of the church help you, in a sense, evaluate a congregation? That may not be exactly the right word, but as you sort of take a step back and try to take stock of a congregation, perhaps a congregation that you're serving as a pastor, or perhaps even one that you're a part of as a member, do you or did you use these as a sort of grid through which to view a given congregation? Yeah, I guess the uh, the visual I would give is if you think of a bullseye of concentric circles, and if you think about the the bullseye itself, if we're going to be a church, first of all, we have to to be a church. <laughs> and so we want to focus on what's essential. So at the heart of the church, we should have these essential marks that are identifying us. And I'd like to come back in a minute to the other two marks and why those were seen by the reformers. But then flowing from that, there are other attributes the church does have. And we might think of the next circle around the essentiality of the church being what we might call attributes of faithfulness, where, yeah, church should be, as the Nicene Creed, it should be one. So we should see, for instance, unity in a local church. Or a lot of people like to talk about love. Well, we should see love flowing from a church. So it's okay to think about other attributes the church has, but we need to make sure first and foremost we're at the core because that's going to 
help radiate out these other aspects of faithfulness. And then perhaps a third ring we could visualize around those would be what we might call indicators of healthiness. You know, for instance, should a church be doing evangelism? Certainly it should be, but, you know, not all churches do, and yet there's still churches. And so, you want to get them back in the Word of God and helping them to see the need for evangelism. That's going to create in their heart a desire for that as they engage in that and pray about that. And so, that we would hope would flow out into healthiness and to growth. But so often, again, churches, when they're struggling, tend to focus on those outer rings more than really going back to the heart first and foremost and making sure that they've got these clear, what I really believe are clear marks of a true church from the scriptures firmly in their minds and in their practices as a congregation. So let's move into talking about these next two, the administration of the sacraments. How does that mark out a church, and in what sense does that need to remain central to the church's identity? How is that derived from the scriptures, and then how is that supposed to flow out into shaping the life of the church? Mm -hmm. Well, when we talk about the sacraments, of course, again, the Catholic Church had numbered at least seven of them. But when we look at the Word of God and we see what does Christ, who's the head of the church, say? What does he say are to be those signs that he's given to us to represent the gospel to us? We clearly see two of them. There's, of course, baptism, and perhaps the clearest place we can see that is in the Great Commission, where he tells us to go and make disciples of the nations and then baptizing them in the name of the triune God. And then he's also given to us his supper, the Lord's Supper, communion, which he clearly, right before his death at the time of the Passover, initiated with his disciples and then gave clear instructions on. The apostles followed that up, particularly the Apostle Paul. And so we see these two visible signs, outer visible signs, uh, corresponding to the work that God's done in our life, the, the washing of us through the gospel represented by baptism and the union that we have with Jesus Christ based on his broken body and shed blood through the sacrament of communion. And one of the things I like to point out to folks as I try to help them to understand why, why these are the marks of the church is one of the things I say is that the church has marks because we have a marker. We have one who marks us as his own. And that's the great promise of the gospel is that God has claimed us to be his people. That's what baptism represents. He puts his name on us and says that we are his unique possession. And so we want to show that we belong to Jesus Christ, whom we've come to believe in, in the gospel. And I think there's a great correspondence between these three marks and the offices that Jesus holds that we testify to in our confessions, that he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He's a prophet. He came and brought God's word to us. And so the church should be a place where the word of God is central. He's a priest. He died for us to save us from our sins. And so we should be marked by that. And that's what the sacraments do of uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They show that we are those who hold to and believe in the, the priestly work of Christ. And he's our king. Uh, he's our ruler. 
And so there should be an expectation in a body that claims to be his uh, that we are under his authority. And so therein lies that third mark of uh, discipline. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. How does discipline get worked out in the church? There are extremes that people are familiar with. On the one hand, there are churches which really don't talk at all about discipline, and that's not a part at all of their congregational life. I guess you could call into question to what extent that congregational life is a is a living thing because of that. But then there are other churches which seem to make discipline fairly central and perhaps overbearing. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role that discipline plays, why it's a mark of the church, and how it's supposed to get worked out in the life of a congregation. Yeah, it is one just prone to much misunderstanding. Often, you know, the question I get is, you know, why is discipline a mark? Why isn't love, for instance, a mark? Well, again, love is a central attribute to Christianity. It's a central attribute to the church. But again, we're talking about how can I really know <laughs> whether a congregation is truly following God or not? And so I need something that I can that's tangible. And we know that God disciplines those he loves. And so there is a way that we can see whether a congregation or a group of people are really of Christ or not. And that would be that they don't only hear the word, but they are responding to it. And as you read the Reformers carefully, they were very quick to point out as they discussed discipline, that both the positive and negative side, and I think so often why people respond negatively to it is because they're only hearing the corrective nature. They think about just excommunication, for instance, and that's all they associate with discipline. But it's really much, much more deep than that. The Reformers talked a lot about what we would call formative discipline. It's really a, the idea of discipleship, because those words are related, that the people who are hearing God's word are also in subjection to it, that there's a, a desire to obey it and to follow it. And so uh, the church's life should be much about how do we help people uh, walk with God? And that's where the love really should be coming out and the real sense of God's presence should be coming out as we're there humbly trying to help one another walk with God. Now, there are times when you know people who've professed faith in Christ begin to stray or they fall into sin or go back to sinful patterns, and that's where the church needs to, if they're really going to be shepherding the people of God, need to make sure that they're coming alongside and helping them and there are passages all throughout the Bible given to, to teach the church how we can help one another, how we can be a body to one another, how one member can support another, how one member can strengthen a weak brother, for instance. But perhaps the one that's most familiar to people is found in Matthew 18, where there's a, a process outlined for the more corrective side of discipline. If a brother sins, we find that there's not to be a rush to judgment, but there is to be a very personal interaction in the congregation if one person sees another one sin. You know, as a pastor, I often had people knock on the door of my study and tell me they had a problem. And as they came in, the problem typically was someone else, <laughs> something they had seen someone else do in the church. And my first question always was, have you gone and talked to them about it? And boy, did that question save me a lot of time, because if they hadn't talked to them about it, then I said, well, you need to go talk to them first, 
And I might coach them a little bit how to address that particular person if I knew a little bit about the situation, or even if I didn't, uh, how to approach that person and their personality. But you go talk to them and see if they respond. And then if you need more help, you come back and talk to me. And so often, just getting people on a personal interaction, as we're encouraged to do by Jesus in Matthew 18, uh, verses 15, 16, to go and speak to people privately, so much can get worked out that way. Dr. York, I'm wondering, for people who are new to this discussion or who are hearing it and either in pastoral ministry or simply part of a church and want to learn more, are there any books or resources that you've found especially helpful? You framed this by talking about the work of some of the early reformers. Is that where you'd point people? Or what kinds of resources would you put into people's hands if they want to think more deeply about the marks of the church? Well, one of the places I'd really encourage people to go is, first of all, just to the confessions. This is the 500th anniversary of uh, Luther's nailing the thesis, and so there's a lot of uh, talk about uh, the Reformation this year. And I think it would be really good for people to go. You can find them on the internet to go and look at the different uh, confessions, uh, the Protestant confessions, um, the Belgic confession, the the French Confession, of course, the Westminster Confession. Just look up these different Protestant confessions. And as you look through those, which they're not all that long, you know, some of them, if you were to print them off, would only be, you know, 15, 20 pages at most. Uh, You'll start seeing there uh, just, uh, particularly as it starts talking in the sections talking about the church, you will see that these marks are discussed and delineated there with scripture references. So that's one place I just like to encourage uh, people to go. Uh, Calvin does uh, talk about the marks of the church and the institutes, and that's a a good place to go and uh, study to find out uh, more about uh, the marks. The one book that's pretty popular in the evangelical and reformed world today uh, that our listeners uh, may have heard or have read is Mark Dever's Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And that book is just what it says it is. Um, Pastor Dever himself says that uh, he's not treating just the essential marks of the church, but he's talking about healthiness. But as you read that book, you see he treats two of the marks uh, in terms of the essential identity of the church, of the preaching and the mark of discipline. He doesn't treat the sacraments. But it just helps you to begin to think about this issue and what marks are essential, what marks might be more considered to be just being faithful to the Lord, what marks are more the idea of healthiness. That would be a place to go. And and then to be real honest with you, Jonathan, I'm I've got a book that I'm hoping will be published soon. <laughs> that's uh, on this subject, so I'm still waiting to hear. I'm not ready to announce uh, where that might be found yet, but I'm really eager to get that uh, published. And when I do, I hope it will be called "Hitting the Marks." Well, when that comes out, and when you do have an announcement to make, I hope we can perhaps talk further or that you'll at least give us a heads up so that we can uh, point readers in that direction on Place for Truth. So in any case, Dr. York, thank you so much for your time today, for your work, for your ongoing writing ministry and teaching ministry, and for your generosity with us today. Well, thank you, Jonathan, and thank you as well for your work. I'm glad if we can co-labor together. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Theology on the Go. Just for listening, we'd like to give you a free MP3 set from the Alliance Archives. The set's entitled The Church, God's New Society. It has addresses from J.I. Packer, Eric Alexander, James Boyce, and many others. If you'd like to download these MP3s, go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a link there for you to access them. Thanks again for listening to Theology on the Go. We couldn't do this without the donations from listeners like you. And if you want to donate, you can go to placefortruth.org and do that. Or you can go to alliancenet.org, and there's a place to donate there as well. Don't forget to like us on iTunes and spread the word to your friends. And thanks for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. (laughs) 